0: Welcome to Broadband Conversations. I'm Jessica Rosenworcel, a member of the Federal Communications Commission, and this is the podcast where I get to talk to leading women from across the technology, innovation and media industries. You get to hear what they're working on, what's on their minds, and what they think is the next big thing. Right now we're living through so much change and so much upheaval in our daily lives as a result of the coronavirus. So many of us are at home and relying on technology and communications like never before. And that's for telework, telehealth, teleeducation, and so much more. We're taking care of each other, our families, our children, and our communities by staying at home. And while the future is so uncertain, I'm finding hope in those who are helping lead us through this crisis. That's of course the doctors and nurses who are on the front lines as well as the grocery workers making sure the shelves are stocked and food is available. It's also the folks that are cleaning and sanitizing our remaining public spaces. That includes the communications workers who are keeping our essential networks up and running, and of course, the first responders and 911 operators who are helping coordinate emergency response. So I'm really honored to be joined by one of the women who's doing that today, and that is Karima Holmes, and she's the director of the Office of Unified Communications for the District of Columbia. And as director, she oversees the city's emergency 911 and non-emergency activities, and that protects Washington, DC's 700,000 residents, and get this, more than 20 million annual visitors. It's a big job, so I wanna get started and hear from her directly so she can talk to us about how she got started in public safety, but first let me just say director Holmes thank you so much for taking the time to join us and being with us here today. Oh thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Okay so let's start at the beginning. I like to roll back. How did you get to this job? I mean I know you've worked on public safety and 911 in other states but tell us what brought you to
1: public service and how you eventually made it to the nation's capital. Sure. So I started my career I was um I was actually a freshman in college about 20 years ago and um i was just looking for a job honestly with benefits i i was working in a department store at the time and so i went down to the city and i found i found this job that was called communications officer I had no idea what it was but i knew i qualified for it i had the background um, and so i applied for this position and i found out that it was a 911 call taker in Augusta, Georgia, which is where I'm from. Um, And uh, I started um, the job, I went through the training, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, At the time, I was a biology major. I, to this day, do not know why. I was really good at science, but I didn't know where that was gonna take me. And um, I actually changed my, um, my uh, major to criminal justice because I fell in love with the whole 911 and police and fire and EMS, and um, I ended up going through um, undergrad and grad school at the Augusta 911 Center. I was still there. I was a call taker, moved up to dispatch. Um, I was a shift supervisor for a couple of years, got into quality assurance training, and um, after grad school, I was ready for leadership. Um, and I just kind of put my portfolio out there. There was a couple of positions across the states um, for nine one one directors, nine one one managers, and I fell into a great position in Dallas, Texas. It was Dallas County, Texas. It was three suburban um, cities out right outside of Dallas in a regional nine one one center. And so, regional nine one one centers was was pretty new then. Um, this was um, to around 2011, 2012 and I was the director of the Southwest Regional Communication Center, which was the 911 center for uh, DeSoto, Duncanville, and Cedar Hill, Texas. I did that for a little over three years, and then in 2016, at the tail end of Mayor Muriel Bowser's um, first year in office, uh, I was brought here to D.C., which was awesome, Um, I had never thought that I would end up in Washington, D.C., but I I took the position in 2016, and it has been absolutely wonderful since then. I have never, I will add, it's been wonderful, but I have never been this busy in my life. Um, And so I'm here, I have been here for four four years in January, um, and I am the, uh, uh, the director here for about 400 employees. We handle nine one one and three one one for the district. We get about three and a half million calls a year. We have we're responsible for the radio infrastructure, and all ten radio uh, sites that are spread out across um, the district.
0: You know, nine one one has it's like invisible to so many people because it might be the most important call you ever make, but hopefully you don't have to make that call. But there you have all these folks who are answering these calls. And you described doing this in Georgia, doing this in Texas, but now in the nation's capital. Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many jurisdictions here, federal authorities. We've got Virginia on one side, Maryland on the other, the district in the center. I just have to imagine that level of coordination for public safety response is totally unique. I just love it if you tell us a little more about that.
1: Oh, sure, it is unique. And I would like to say that it's even modeled. Um, I think that years ago, definitely in the 80s, 90s, um, and and early 2000s, everything was so siloed. All jurisdictions, they did their own thing. Um, For instance, when I was in Augusta, Georgia, we were still speaking in 10 codes. And, and I know you guys heard police say 10 4, you know, the 10 <laughs> Yeah, I could and say that. sounds sentence. like the movies from like a decade probably, ago, right? Exactly, yes. I could probably still say a full sentence and just using 10 codes. Well, <laughs> my city would have a set of 10 codes, and the city next to me would have a totally different language. And oh my so, goodness. you know, yes. And so when I was um, in, actually, my, I was one year in into 911, 911. And one of the um, one of the big things that came out of the 9-11 Commission was communications, right? You right. had different boroughs and different um, responders coming into New York City and different areas, and we really couldn't talk to each other. And so what has happened since then is regionalization, right? We all share information. Information sharing, we're regularly meeting. And so it's really unique here, but I don't think that it's, it's not gonna be the standard. I think we're heading to that standard that we have the national capital region. We call it the NCR. And so for instance, yes, I am the vice chair for the 911 Director's Committee in COG, and you have these separate committees for just about every piece of governmental um, division or governmental entity you have. So you have the police chiefs, the fire chiefs, you have um, finance and the city administrators. And we actually are pretty cohesive in most of our protocols and our operations. We keep up with each other. We're talking across boards where whenever a big policy happens, something happens, say inauguration or um, the first week I was here, we had Storm Jonas hit. And um, I was really happy because I had this support system, right? There's about 22 jurisdictions that make up the NCR and there's 14 911 centers that service them. Wait, 22
0: different jurisdictions make up the national capital region.
1: Oh, yes. And that's 22 jurisdictions across, obviously, D.C. and then Maryland and Virginia, northern Virginia. Wow. And so, yeah. And so we really have a good relationship. Um, And internally, just in Washington, D.C., I was really happy to see the cohesiveness and the relations um, between um, the local government, which is us, D.C., and then the federal government. There's about 27 different law enforcement agencies that operate out of this, out of that.
0: So then on top of those 22 local jurisdictions, you have 27 different federal entities that have public safety responsibilities.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then when you start getting across to the Smithsonian's, you know, we have obviously park police, secret service, all of that works cohesively, and I, I, and it works. Yeah. And then I, this is my first time I've ever been in something so saturated with different jurisdictions, with you know, uh, different entities. But they actually are very cohesive. Um, in my building, a separate department that works here is uh, DC's Homeland Security and Emergency Management. That's our local branch, but we're constantly having the national Homeland Security. Um, I have meetings where I'm part of our um, interoperability communications committees. And so there's all this conversation that constantly goes on, um, either prepping for things like, unfortunately, COVID that we're going through now, or just prepping for everyday events, protests or um, any type of movements, um, if we have something like, you know, the G20 summit. You know, and we're working together, and it it actually works. What we find is we actually have more in common than we have um, uh, opposites.
0: You know, what's amazing is that when it works well, this is all invisible to people. But the amount of coordination behind the scenes is really epic, it's something to behold. A
1: lot of movement.
0: A lot of movement, all right. So let's just point out, you mentioned you came uh, with uh, the city mayor. Uh, after the end of the first year of her first term. yeah, And that mayor, like so many others around the country, is telling everyone to stay home. Stay home. That, yeah, and how does that impact 911 at this moment? You have a city, we're not frozen, but like right. lots of other places, there's a lot less movement, but mm-hmm. I don't
1: think that slows the calls to 911, does it? So funny, you should say that. It actually does, Commissioner, oh, wow. um, but I'll tell you why. So, okay. the, the, and, and this happens with most large events or um, catastrophic events. So what happens is the amount of people calling 911, for instance, we'll use the virus since we're in it now, the amount of people calling 911 that are sick or don't feel well and things like that, those things stay and they do sometimes creep up a little when you have obviously a pandemic that we're going through. But the other type of calls drops so, for instance, you don't have as many people on the highway, so you don't have as many uh-huh. accidents. Yeah. You don't have businesses open, so you don't have as many thefts. You don't have people um, around each other as much, so you don't have any, too many um, arguments or, you know, some type of discrepancy over a parking space and things like that because people are indoors. And so I was on a webinar, um, maybe about two weeks ago, with other nine one one directors or managers across the um, across the states, all the way to California, and the I would say about ninety five percent of them have reported lower nine one one calls, um, and it's because you don't have as many people out. And so that's. Um, Tough term, but that's a good thing for when you're going through something like this because people are staying indoors, and so you do have less calls because the busyness is not
0: there. Well, you know, what it does tend to reflect is that we are abiding by those stay-at-home orders, yes. if you're hearing less of that. But now, does this affect the personnel that work and answer these calls, too?
1: Right. No. So, right. So, we are essential personnel. So, we, um, our shifts and everything stay the same. Everyone comes in. Um, I have not, and I um, have talked to other 911 centers, we do not have a dip in our personnel now. Um, There are centers um, that if they have personnel that maybe have been exposed to the um, virus and they're quarantined, that they're out, but those numbers are not dramatic. Um, Unfortunately, I did read that uh, our our sister city, uh, Detroit, uh 911 center did have a 911 call taker that um succumbed to the uh the complexity of this virus. And that was that really, you know, that was hard to think about. Um, uh, but overall, no, our staffing is up. Our employees understand that they're essential employees. They understand that they're the first first responders. Right, um, right. And so yeah, they're showing up, they're here.
0: Yeah, so this is neat because you're talking really about this extraordinary nationwide network. I mean, they're about 6,000 911 call centers across the country, yep. but you're all in contact and that you're sharing best practices as we migrate through this crisis. I mean, what are you learning from your peers across the country who are dealing with this right now?
1: So, sure. So, I am also, um, we there's this organization called the National Association of State 911 Administrators. I'm the DC rep. I'm 911 Center in DC, but there are um, state level VAPs across all uh, 50 states, the territories, um, and uh, and us of course. But um, we talk also weekly, and so what we're hearing is that the staffing is not an issue. And I honestly, you know, 20 years in, I didn't expect that to be an issue. I've been at different, I've been involved in different high profile cases, and people come to work. 911 call takers are very dedicated, they understand that this is what we signed up for, and they come to work, and I'm really proud about that. Um, I think our biggest concern is um, the mental toll. Um, I I, I know uh, across the United States, and quite frankly across the role of public safety, in recent years we've really been focusing on mental health of our first responders, whether it's 911 call takers or police, fire, and EMS because we deal with these things every day. If you think about it, an individual usually only deals with something dramatic once or twice in their lifetime. You have 911 call takers and our first responders. We're, we deal with it every day. It may not be personal, but we hear those cries. We're talking to those mothers that, you know, child may be, you know, choking on something and you're trying to get her to do the Heimlich. Those type of things we deal with all day, every day. And so we're really conscious as a leadership, as an industry on our mental health. Because, um, for instance, I'm at work. Um, I'm not teleworking. Um, I try and spend less time here just for social distancing, but I'm not teleworking. But I am also part of this community and um, I go home. I take care of my mother, who's in her 60s. Um, I have a 13-year-old son that's an acute asthmatic. And so not only do I come and I'm here and, you know, making sure that our residents are safe and the type of services we're having that I'm having for them or we have for them stays consistent. Um, I also have to think about my house. I think about my home. I have to also stand in line out front of the grocery store to make sure um, I get groceries for my home. And so we think about that for our call takers. And so that's been a big talk about it. Um, and we're we uh, the different entities I spoke to earlier, whether it's nasna, the National capital Region cog group, I'm talking to them weekly. We're on conference call, we're sharing ideas, we're talking about our staffing, what's working, what's not working. And I think what's really important right now is just having that camaraderie and just having some type of um outlet or someone else to touch on, you know, I wanted to try this, is it working for your center? We're doing that. We're having that conversation.
0: That's so good to know because, you know, before um, a whistle blows, an ambulance races, or a fire engine roars down the street, before you get to any of that, the first touch point with public safety is probably with a 911 operator. And the one thing that occurs to me through all of this is that in Washington, the Office of Management and Budget characterize those 911 call takers as clerical workers. And I really hope that this crisis just proves how essential they are in coordinating public safety response. They need to be characterized that way. And when we come out of this on the other side, and you're still there, and all your people who are answering those calls are still there, I really hope that's a change we can make. It's always been apparent to me that these folks do a lot more than clerical work. I really hope that Washington categorizes them more oh accurately my going forward.
1: Oh, yes, Commissioner. I'm so glad you brought that up. So, you know, um, uh, commis- um, Congresswoman Torres out of California has the 911 Saves Act. Oh, no. she's, you know, I know. She's the
0: only former 911 operator yes. in Congress, and I visited where she used to work in uh-huh. 91 in California with her. And she walked around that place like a boss. She knew everything. <laughs> and she had so many stories to tell. Yeah. How she facilitated public safety response. They will um alternately make you angry and odd. Yeah. But when you see the magnitude of what she coordinated to make mm-hmm. sure people were safe, and then you realize there are people who do this every day. Every day the is gonna have to fix this and make sure that you are described in a way that reflects what your duties really involve.
1: Oh yes, I completely agree. I think that, you know, it's not just cliché. We're not just saying we're the first first responders. We really are the first first responders. Um there was a study and I wish I could I could quote or give you who who done it, but I remember they were talking about that, you know, these calls come in, they're heightened. Um the 911 call taker takes the call there's a great, there's a majority of the time, and I don't know the exact percentage, that the 911 call takers actually calms the situation before the officers get there. Um, When someone calls 911, I can still hear screams from when I was a call taker of people calling and me having to calm them down just to get an address. And so I think right now, um, definitely right now, there's no better time to demonstrate the seriousness and the necessity of our profession, because it is a profession. Um, and we, we really wanna make make sure that um, these things are thought through what we're doing. You know, We're dealing with not only the lives of the caller, but we're responsible for those fire, those EMS, our police officers that's going out, making sure we're getting the information that they need, um, so when they go out, they're protected or they're prepared for whatever's going out there. And we are, you know, all of that meets right in our emergency communications, you know, and, and we're doing what we do. We're steadfast in it. Um, we're trained, certified, and we're really passionate about what we do. We answer the call. And it's oh, huge. I know. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know. Well, we're in total agreement. So you're making this so easy. <laughs> um, but I do hope we take this crisis and we make another effort to fix that. now. I know, even before we got to this moment, that when it comes to communications, you've made a lot of improvements to Washington's 911 operations. And given that technology is changing so fast and thinking about how people use technology is changing, I'd love to know what some of those improvements are.
1: Oh, sure. Um, So one of the things when I um, came in, um, obviously before I took the position, um, I researched this agency um, <laughs> like a news reporter. You know, I googled it to death and I read. Well, a that's lot a of good things. instinct. Don't apologize. <laughs> that's, that's what you should do. Right, right. And I would say in Dallas, it was pretty smooth. You know, the volume of calls wasn't so high, and you know, it was easy. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to take on this challenge. And so when I started reading up on the agency, there was a lot of negativity about the 911 call takers at D.C. and how things were handled and the response times. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that, you know, there's 400 employees coming to work every day and just like, I'm gonna do my bare minimum. You know, I just know, you know, working with people every day that, no, you don't get into this job just, you know, for fun, you know? So when I came in, I realized that no, there was two things that was missing here the public just did not have a grip on what happens in a 911 center how we operate um and, and it wasn't anyone's fault other than there just needs to be more outreach and then the other piece of that was i remember looking for the training department and there was a training person and i was like there's one person for the entire you know agency and that fell on an administration before Mayor Bowser. And um, I went to her and we sat down and she was like, what, what do we need to get? And I was like, we need training. We need a training department. And she was completely supportive. She gave me the resources I need. They were short staff. Um, she gave me the positions we needed. We upstaffed the entire 911 center. I created an office of professional standards and development, which was really just responsible for training. Quality Assurance and Employee um, employee Development, and um, we got that kicked off the ground. The employees who were burnt out, they were no longer burnt out because now we had more people on the floor to answer the phone, so when your shift was up, you can get up and leave, not be worried about staying longer, and then we trained them up. We had continuing education that we put out, and that has helped. Uh, one or two of the other things that we did was there was no, there was not a an, um, non-emergency number, and so you call 911 for everything. Uh, we did have 311 for city services, but it wasn't something if you just needed to get your case number or find out who the officer was that handled handled your case. And so we implemented the non-emergency number, which helped relieve some of the calls that came into 911 for true emergencies we partner with our fire and EMS service to integrate a nurse triage line for medical calls that weren't true emergencies. Um, and we know, you know, our population, you know, sometimes you don't know, you know, if you're a new mother, you don't know if that, you know, runny nose is a runny nose or, you know, you need an ambulance. And so we integrated partnering with our uh, fire and EMS service, a nurse triage line where there are nurses in our, um, in my agency on the floor with my call takers and they take lower priority calls and they're, they're able to triage the calls and decide whether or not, you know, let the person know, you know, you're okay, you can take this, or, you know, I'm going to send an ambulance out to you.
0: Well, Um, and you know that training is so important because the technology is just going to continue to evolve. Yes. And we're going to move from just making a call to next generation 911 when those calls could come with, you know, a video, images, all sorts of things. So to me, this is a... Job and a profession that is going to grow much more complex um, over time because digitization is going to change the information we can pass along for emergency response, and you're going to have to sort through so many more things going forward. Yeah. So one of the ways I like to close this out is Mm -hmm. to ask a few questions. Okay. So I want you to, you know, think back, Mm -hmm. like way back, like probably when you were in Augusta, Georgia, back. And I want to ask you, what's the first thing you did on the internet?
1: The first thing i done on the internet. So I have a bad memory, but I can tell you the first thing I remember. I remember playing SimCity, where you create your, I don't know if it was on AOL online. I can't remember, but I remember my brother and I, we had different cities that we built up. Um, oh,
0: my goodness. And now you work for a city. Look at that. It's oh, like there's something predictive in it, all of that, yes. right?
1: So I do remember playing that game SimCity, and I remember the little uh, AOL guy that walked across the screen while you were waiting on the connection to pick up. Yes, yes. All
0: know, right. What's the last thing? What's the very last thing you did on the Internet before joining us today?
1: The last thing I did on the internet before joining you all was I looked on DC, um, oh, coronavirus.dc.gov to look at the stats um, for um, my city with the coronavirus.
0: That's, that's uh, both fair and timely. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, just try to imagine now, given how you know how technology is changing emergency response. What do you think the future of digital and internet life and emergency response might look
1: like? So, you know what? We have a snapshot of what that would look like, and we call it next gen 911. And so, I'll stick to my industry about what that would look like. And that would look both rewarding and scary for us. So, the industry is going, is evolving into next generation 911, and we're really just catching up to the 21st century. We're going from um, a world that was not digital, and um, we would only take calls and we were only able to handle emergencies by voice. And so okay. that is changing where now video, um, location accuracy will all come into the 911 center, and then we will be able to share that with first responders. Now, I say that is both rewarding and scary. I say it's rewarding because it's needed and it's obvious, right? Right. It would be great for an officer to be able to see that scene before he gets there. It would be great for an officer to actually see the picture of the um wanted person before he walks into, you know, um some type of raid, right? And we could share that with them. The scary part of it is in 911, we've been brought up that we didn't have to see it, right? Yeah. We only had to hear it. Um, get the communication between the caller, put that communication in words that we can give it out to our first responders and hang up. And now our call takers will be exposed. We are now gonna be able to see things and have a more detailed description and detail, visual on whatever our responders are going out to. I think we're okay with sharing that burden, but I do think that at the same time, it is a little different than what we're used to now, and so we're just really getting ready to prep for that.
0: Here, here. And that's why the training you put in place is so important, yeah. and it's why also making sure that the Office of Management and Budget characterizes this work as public safety is so important. So, I'm hoping for that for the future, too. I wanna thank you, Director Holmes, for joining us today. But before we go, where can folks follow you and keep up with what you're doing in Washington and for 911
1: nationally? Sure, so we have our Twitter Twitter handle, which is uh, 311dc.gov, um, and we have OUCDC also on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, Karima Holmes, um, and um, we're we're out there. We're really excited. And Commissioner, before I leave, I wanna switch hats right quick and thank you. Um, I'm also a part of the FirstNet board and I'm I'm a board member since uh, last year. And um, I do wanna thank you because I remember coming across something or having a conversation with someone And um, I was told that Commissioner um, Rosenworcel. I've been working on your name. No, I appreciate (laughs) it. No problem. I have a I have a name too, so people work on my name. But I did want to thank you because I know that you were a key component in the legislation and getting passed years ago for FirstNet, and so I did want to just thank you for that with my board member hat on.
0: Oh, thank you. There's no more important communications than public safety communications, and thank you for what you have done for public safety in the past and also right now during this crisis. Really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks. Thanks.